Church of Christ presents the reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman for the second Sunday of Advent, December 5th, 2021. Well, with thanks and apologies to the Reverend Debbie Thomas, whose words I'm about to both paraphrase and quote. She wrote, and I edited, Advent is a good time to remember that the Bible we read and reverence is a wilderness text. It's a text that was born in times of trauma, displacement, and loss. Neither the ancient writers who created the texts that are now our sacred scripture, nor the vast majority of the characters they wrote about were what we might call winners. They were persecuted and dislocated. They were enslaved and desperate. They lived through periods of famine and war, plague and natural disaster. They suffered through starvation and violence and barrenness, captivity and exile, colonization and genocide. They were in countless ways the wretched of the earth. They were brave, lonely voices crying in the desert. And they did, of course, cry out all of that sorrow. They cried out and they wrote down their rage and their fear, their horror and their pain. Dip into the Psalms sometime and sit with them one by one and you will hear every one of those emotions. It's all there in the text. But here's the remarkable thing. They also cried out their hope, their fierce hope in a God who cared for them a God who vindicated them and saved them, a God who attended to them even in their ordinariness, even in the wilderness. There was something about that wilderness experience that birthed in them a capacity for profound, life-changing, life-giving hope. Close quote. This hope runs all the way through the biblical texts, through every genre in the Bible, the law and the history, the prophets and the prayers, and across all the centuries in which the texts were written and compiled together to create what we call the Bible. This hope is grounded in the firm belief, born of experience, that despite all kinds of human suffering, all the different kinds that human beings are prone to, there is an irreducible, radiant, positive energy at the heart of everything that is on the side of human flourishing. And it's on the side of those particular people's human flourishing. They're thriving. And even more, this creating force that they call God seeks to be in relationship with them, does not stay remote, and cold and powerful, but comes close and intimate and loving. The force that created everything pays attention to their lives, their ordinary human lives, and was present to them both in the creation around them and in their direct experience. 
They gathered the stories of these experiences of God's empowering presence from their ancestors and handed them down generation to generation, passing on the gift of their experiences so that descendants of descendants not yet born might have them. Now, these texts of divine encounter are, of course, conditioned by the culture that produced them. It was a bold, creative, patriarchal culture of shame and honor, a culture where loyalty and hospitality were prized, but where female lives were often undervalued. In today's story from Genesis, we hear more of the saga of Abraham and Sarah, founders of the whole People of God family. We only read a tiny bit of their story today, so just for a reminder and a refresher, by the time we hear this snippet, their lives had already involved leaving their homeland and setting out for a new home at a time when place and family lineage meant everything, both identity and survival, they let all of that go because Abraham heard God calling him to get up and go to a place that God would show him. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know how long it would take to get there. He didn't know what he'd find when they arrived. But Abraham heard God and said yes. The children's curriculum, Godly Play, puts it this way. Sometimes Abram would go out to the edge of the desert and look across the sand and into the sky. Then God came so close to Abraham, and Abraham came so close to God that he knew what God wanted him to do. It is a beautiful story of profound trust. But also, too, the story of Abraham and Sarah involves not one, but two episodes when, while he was traveling in a faraway place with his beautiful wife, Abraham decided to pass her off as his sisters, lest the men of that town look at his beautiful wife and decide to kill him and take her. So he lied and convinced her to lie and put her in an unbearable situation. The ancestors included this hideous story about their great patriarch and how God intervened to restore right relationships that his human fear and selfish callousness had broken. What he had broken, God restored. Then, of course, there is a story that we shared last week about Sarah's behavior to Hagar. Sarah, who had been traumatized by Abraham's behavior and by her own child, childlessness in a culture where having children was both a personal desire, but it also was needed to make the land sustain a family. Without children to work the land, you'd go hungry. You need children as insurance also for your old age. So for a woman to be barren was a frightening place to be. Traumatized, Sarah worked her trauma out on her foreign slave woman, Hagar. She turned Hagar into an incubator by which Sarah could get a child. She abused Hagar when she, when she did get pregnant, dissed Hagar's child, Ishmael, trying to get him disinherited, and then convinced Abraham to deport Hagar from the land. 
trauma received becomes trauma passed on. It is to these people that God comes, these people with all of these flaws that God calls. In the slice of the story that we heard today, we hear two, a couple of really important things. First, as I said, God picks these truly flawed human beings and decides to bless them, to bless their descendants, and through them, to bless the whole world. The half of the family tree born to the foreigner, Ishmael and his descendants, they'll be blessed too. The covenant will be with Isaac, but Ishmael is not forgotten. He also will become great. This story cycle was written down long after the events that it narrates. And during the time when it was written, there were, there were regional and ethnic conflicts that existed. Conflicts between Israel, the descendants of Isaac, and Edom, the descendants of Ishmael. The story they told was about the essential blessedness of both sides of the conflict and the ancient and enduring and foundational kinship between them. I wonder where else in the world, the world today, this imagination of the kinship of ancient enemies might lead to an awareness that across ethnic identities, we are related and we belong to each other. The second thing I noticed in the Genesis reading is that through the patriarchy of the culture and the patriarchy of the text, another thing shines through, the equality of the genders before God. Not necessarily before people, but before God. Because Sarai, because although Sarai does not seem to be present, much less to speak, God says, I will bless her. She will become nations. Rulers of people shall come into being from her. She. The writers may not have wanted equality, but even so, God's blessing of women comes through the text. In our gospel story for today, we see a similar pattern, patriarchy and equality intertwined. We enter the story in the moment after the angel Gabriel has left Mary. Mary has learned about two unexpected pregnancies, her own and her relative Elizabeth's. Mary gets up and goes immediately to see Elizabeth. Her great speed, rushing to Elizabeth, going with haste, may be a reminder, a tender statement about how much she loved Elizabeth, but it also reminds us that she's living under occupation in a militarized land and travel is dangerous. She has to go quickly. Once she gets there, the dance of gender begins. She enters Zachariah's house because under patriarchy, property belongs to men. But as those who know the story might remember, Zechariah is at that time silent. He has been silenced for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Zechariah the priest, who goes into the Holy of Holies, is silenced because of his lack of faith, his lack of trust in God's promise. When he finally does speak, 
after the birth of their son, it is only after he has affirmed in writing that Elizabeth has announced the correct name for the boy, John. Although it's not a family name and no one can understand why they picked it, John is his name. The usual pattern of female silencing in the text is reversed. And instead, in these brief verses, we are given a window into things that are far too infrequently celebrated, either in the biblical text or anywhere in our culture, really. We're given a glimpse of female solidarity, love, and friendship, and also of the profound religious experience of a woman. Before John is grown and wandering in his unique clothes and eating his unusual diet and galvanizing the neighborhood with his preaching and baptizing, before he was even born, before Jesus goes down into the River Jordan and comes up to be greeted by the voice from heaven proclaiming him beloved, before he was even born, before any of that, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby in her womb leaps for joy. Instead of holding that information private, she gives witness to it. She cries it out with a loud voice so that Mary and whoever else is in earshot can hear it. Elizabeth, neither meek nor mild, is filled with the Spirit, speaks out, shares her interior experience, and blesses Mary. It is such a tender picture of two women, both miraculously pregnant, one old, one young, joyful for each other. There is no competition between these two about whose pregnancy is more unexpected, more miraculous, or who will bear the more important child. There is no shaming for pregnancies that might set some people gossiping. There is only joy and affirmation and blessing and the Holy Spirit. For those of you who pay attention to this kind of cultural question, this conversation actually passes the Bechdel test, the test that is often given to movies to assess, is there at any place in this story a scene where there are two named women having a conversation about anything other than a man? Once you hear that criteria, I invite you to pay attention to the things you watch on TV. It's alarming how infrequently we see two women having a conversation. So I treasure this text, actually. It's, one of, it's so brief, but it's so beautiful. It's one of my favorites. In Advent, we prepare to hear again the story of God coming into the world, this world a fractured, and unreconciled people. This story of Jesus belongs to the long lineage of stories that claim God is present, that God is present and blessing ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It adds to these stories an invitation to transformation and an awakening to holiness. As we gather our hearts around the communion table here and in each of our homes, we're invited to claim our own place in this long lineage of ancestors, to claim their stories as our own, to savor the glimpses they've given us 
of people who have experienced God and to wonder what experiences of our own are we willing to cry out and share. We have these stories because people, imperfect people, were willing to say, I experienced God too. When can, how willing are we to say, yes, I have heard God. I have experienced the presence of that radiant, irreducible otherness, willing human flourishing, that love that is beyond anything. As we prepare to celebrate the arrival of the infant Jesus, we can hang on to this promise of Christ who returns again and again in us, in the world, in community, in all kinds of unexpected places to complete the work of reconciliation and restoration. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.